Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you are listening to Exposure on WDBM East Lansing, The Impact. So tonight on the show, we're going to stick to a single subject, weird majors. I have a friend who is an ARCA major, and anytime I asked her what an ARCA major was, she said, Ugh, can we do this another time? It was a major whose definition was so complicated, she was tired of explaining it to people. And that shocked me. The fact that there was a major this close to me, and I had absolutely no idea what it entailed. So I decided to embark on a journey, to dispel the weirdest majors I could get my hands on at MSU. So here was my criteria in looking for these majors. One, it had to be an undergrad major, because once you get into grad school, it's kind of hard to find anything typical to combat the strange. And two, it had to be weird, or at least uncommon. Primarily, I was looking for majors that people have never heard of, or majors that maybe we have heard of, but no one really knows what it is. In this episode, I cover philosophy, gender studies, neuroscience, and more. back to my friend. Even though I was surprised with my friend's response, I could still relate. One of my majors is professional writing, and I tend to find myself explaining it to people a lot. So I decided to start there, professional writing. Well, so here's a quick summary. Everyone writes on the job. That's Danielle DeVos, the co-founder of the professional writing major. I don't care if you're electrical engineering, nursing, physics, whatever. You're going to write on the job. I think that shocks some people, perhaps those who don't really like writing or don't see themselves as good at it. But written communication is crucial. I asked her to come in and help me dispel this major. So everyone writes on the job. Professional writers write for their job. That is their job. They're writing communication and editing specialists working in a range of different industries. Are there other schools that have um, the professional writing major? A handful. That's a really interesting question because writing majors are somewhat rare but emergent. Over the last like 15 years, we've seen a lot of institutions launch undergraduate majors in writing, but we're still pretty rare. So MSC is one of uh, a handful of schools that have this major? One of a handful. At a lot of schools, um, there's a writing certificate or students can take writing intensive classes like in an English department or through journalism. Um, but an actual bachelor's degree in writing is, yeah, pretty rare. You don't know uh, maybe a rough number of how many uh, people are in the major, do you? Yeah, about 200. About 200? Yeah. And that's that's relatively small compared to some other majors. Oh, yeah. Right? If you look at business, for instance, or communication, we're pretty small. And that's deliberate and good, I think. I mean, one of the things we're really aware of is industry trends. And we don't want to graduate 2,000 grads a year. That I mean, we're going to oversaturate the market. Um, the other thing that's a perk about being small is is we're, we can really be a community. I mean, students know each other. They know their faculty members. We have lots of conversations. Um, when you have 200 people, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Can you walk us through a little bit about what professional writing classes are about? What yeah. kinds of classes do they have? What do they entail? What are the students learning? Sure. Well, let me back 
up a bit and talk about the tracks in the major. Because okay. there, there's three paths in the undergraduate major in professional writing. One is um, digital and technical writing. So that's science writing, technical communication, web development, um, user informatics, media production, those sorts of things. Uh, the second track is communities and cultures, and that is essentially nonprofit communication. So that's for people who are passionate about working for um, a government organization, an advocacy organization, um, a nonprofit. And then the third track is editing and publishing. And that's really for people who want to work um, mainly in book publishing, magazine publishing, maybe not necessarily as writers, but as editorial directors, acquisition editors, marketing coordinators, stuff like that. So those are the three tracks. And I'd say most students kind of lean toward one track or the other. Um, just based on their interests and their interests and their experiences. As far as the classes, there are four core classes. There's an intro class. Um, one of I think our key points um, is that we really emphasize um, digital and technical communications. So one of our required courses for the major is a web authoring class because our argument would be most writing happens on screens now and understanding how people interface. Um, with digital text, whether they're web pages or something they're reading through an app on a handheld, that understanding how to craft those documents is important. Another one of the core courses is the love of my life. It's our document design class. Um, and we cover everything from typography to color theory. We work in InDesign. We create page layouts. Um, not necessarily because our students generally go out and work as graphic designers or even design consultants or whatever but um as editors and writers they have to know how to negotiate that so like if you're working in book publishing and you're coordinating and managing titles you're gonna have to choose or at least provide advice on uh, jacket designs um, if you work for a nonprofit and you're working on grant applications, you're going to have to know how to design effective tables and other data displays um, to present budgets and report on what you're doing. It's just kind of critical to what we do. So although writing is is the focus, uh, design is a huge secondary part to it. Absolutely. I am a, a double major of English and professional writing myself. And in some ways, I think this major may have inspired this episode on strange majors we're doing here because, yeah, it doesn't it doesn't seem to be uh, at all what it sounds like yeah. at first, um, and it, and it definitely seems a little weird. One thing I've noticed was in the classrooms that we have that are primarily professional writing classrooms, uh, they're not like typical classrooms. They they look a little different. Can you sure. tell us a little bit what they're like? And our classrooms are weird by design. Um, so specifically, one of the classes in which we, one of the classrooms in which we hold a lot of classes is 317 Bessie, and that's our professional writing um, computer classroom. It's a studio space. It's half Mac, half PC, crap everywhere from buckets of markers to stuffed animals to stacks of magazines. Um, in our argument for designing the space the way that we did, it's not locked down in rows. The walls are not putty, gray, or neutral based, is because um, uh, writers need creative spaces to work, you know, and you kind of feed off of what's around you. Um, so having access to tools, having access to each other, having access to different types of computers and different applications for design, writing, and communication, we knew that was absolutely necessary. So we um, worked really hard and had some great partners at MSU, like um, in ATS 
and um, classroom design who helped us craft these spaces really deliberately for the work that our students do. So after um, graduation, how, how does this major apply to the work world? What are some careers that professional writing majors find? One of the other selling points, I think, of the major is that we really emphasize professional development. Um, so yeah, we're academic, we're intellectual, we're theoretical, but we also have a sound and solid eye to industry trends and the types of work our students are going to do um, in their co-curriculars, in their internships, in their jobs at MSU, and definitely beyond. So some examples. Um, Molly Tranberg graduated a couple years ago um, from PW. She now works for Oxford University Press in New York City. Um, so she's um, an editorial assistant there. Let's see. Um, we have two alums, Sarah and Jillian. Um, they both work uh, in brew houses in, in Michigan. Sarah is the communications and marketing director for um, Founders in Grand Rapids. Okay. And Jillian is the communications, um, I think she's a communications assistant with Shorts. And I'm really hoping we get someone at Bell's because then we've got like this trifecta <laughs> of, of beer work in the major. Um, what do they do at these? Yeah. Beers? So, Sarah, if you've been to Founders um, website, if you've bought a Founders T-shirt, um, if you've admired the artwork on their bottles, she has a hand in all of that. So her primary um, work, as, as best as I know, she graduated a couple of years ago and we stay in touch, but I, I don't know what her day-to-day -day life is, right. is um, marketing and communication. So she manages the social media. That's everything from, you know, writing the Twitter posts to updating their Facebook to um, working on their website and making sure it's up to date. Um, managing, um, I think, the interface on the website for the beer releases. There's a really cool, like, table and grid that you can see. And if you're a beer person, like, you live by that. Like, when is this going to be released? So she does that. I know she does a lot of work, like, in-house. She's helped with T-shirt designs and other things. So I think she's a great example of the type of writing PWers do and why we look kind of strange, right? Because mm -hmm. I don't know of any other major that's helping students learn how to craft a rhetorically effective tweet. Like, right? We don't, we just don't do that. That's not mm -hmm. really on our radar yet, right. except for in some of these quote unquote strange majors. Um, so, Sarah, Jillian, Molly, um, we have a handful of students right now in Detroit. We have a Detroit and a Brooklyn posse of PW alums. Like, there's this like little village of PWs in Brooklyn doing all sorts of interesting um, web development work for nonprofits and for startups. Um, again, handful of people. Um, in Detroit, doing a range of different uh, community-oriented communication stuff. Um, one of our alums, John, works for DeHive. Um, another one of our alums, Mike, works for um, the Detroit uh, Museum of Contemporary Art. Um, most of these folks work as communications managers, communication directors, writers, editors. What would you say to uh, somebody who's listening to this and is – trying to decide whether or not professional writing is the right major for them. One of the things I talk with students about so regularly, it's one of the initial conversations I usually have with people if they're thinking about PW, is we talk about where writing happens at MSU. So English is a great place and a great major for writers, especially if you love reading literature and writing primarily analyses of literature. And then, of course, creative writing. So poetry, fiction, screenwriting lives in English. Then there's journalism. Journalism is a great major if a student is passionate about um, news reporting um, and media production. 
And then there's PW. And then we talk a little bit about that. So I think it's helpful to provide students with a sense of the landscape at MSU, what majors they can pursue to study and do communication and writing. Um, and I think having that menu in front of them, I think, is really helpful. And then, of course, I try to sell them on PW because, like, we're the best. <laughs> All right. Um, can you ever think of, like, a time it really demonstrated uh, maybe how obscure or how uncommon or, um, you know, how unheard of uh, the professional writing major is? Yeah, I off the top of my head, I got one for you. Oh. Okay. So one of the, the core experiences for the major is a portfolio seminar. Um, and a lot of students think, oh, I'm going to take this class and make a professional portfolio. Like, I've been thinking about this. Okay, but the class is so much more than that. I mean, you spend a semester with other writers and communicators who are shaping their professional identities and transitioning from the identity of student to professional and um, reflecting on who they are and drafting cover letters and tweaking their resumes and selecting portfolio pieces that they can share with them, potential employers. Um, I love this class. So I taught it a couple of years ago. And Sarah... Sarah Bowser, who's in Chicago now, um, she's a front-end web developer. I'm pretty sure that's her current title. One day in class, a student asked, well, what do I do if they ask me for an expected salary? Like, I, I, like what do you do with that? And it hit me like, like, that's another one of those things we just don't really talk about. If you seek it out at career services, there's some resources. But in academic majors, we don't often talk about situating yourself professionally and being able to do that. So I was sitting up at the front of the class thinking, all right, we'll go to, like, um, some of the websites, like CNN Money has a great calculator where you figure out, like, okay, what area of the world am I in? What profession am I interested in? You know, what's the typical salary range? And before I could even do that, Sarah stood up in class, uh, walked up to the whiteboard and started writing. She's like, well, here's what you have to figure out. You have to figure out where you're going to live. And then you have to look at cost of living. And then you have to figure out what your student loan payments are going to be and your car payments. And then how did you and she went through this whole list and everyone's jaws <laughs> dropped open like, holy crap, this is all this stuff I need to think about. And I thought, how perfect a moment is this that like I don't have to be the person explaining this, but that a student who's thought through these things is sharing with her peers, here's how you think about this. Here's how you situate yourself. Um, that was just, that was a moment to me that said, yeah, we're weird and we're different. And we're <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. The next major I decided to tackle was philosophy. Everyone's heard of philosophy, and I think we all know it's a common study at universities. But I mean, have you ever actually met a philosophy major? To understand this one, I sat down with Deborah Nails of the philosophy department. I told her what I was doing with this episode, covering strange and uncommon majors. And the first question I asked her was, do you think you should be on here for that category? Do you think philosophy is one of those majors? Why, sure. Students don't normally take high school philosophy courses. So although maybe they've heard of Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, they didn't study them in school. So it doesn't occur to them to major until they get a taste and decide they want to. I would like to know if you have any uh, like uh, stories or uh, if you can remember a time when it was a really good example of how uh, unheard of or unknown or how... Um, uncommon this major is? 
it turns out that a lot of students get to university and think philosophy means psychology. So when someone says, I'm a philosophy major, they say, oh, well, then tell me about myself. Or sometimes they think it's religion. So you say you're a philosophy major and they say, does that mean you know something about my soul? I don't know. <laughs> um, so what is, if you could sum it up really quick, what is the philosophy major about? The philosophy major has two big parts, content and form. And the content is the history of philosophy, which touches everything. Physics, math, philosophy were born together in Greece, 6th century BCE. Then it spread out. Psychology split off pretty soon thereafter. And philosophy covers everything that you can think of. There's a philosophy of engineering, a philosophy of uh, art, business. Philosophy covers everything. So that's the content. But the form of philosophy is critical. Think here not um, critical as destructive, but critical like a film critic who has to tell you why the movie's good as well as telling you why the movie's bad. So a philosopher tries to get to the basic principles in everything that she or he looks at in life. So both those, form and content. Do you have any uh, idea of how many students at MSU are philosophy majors? Ooh, that's a hard one because almost everyone who's a philosophy major is a double major sometimes a triple major. And so I would say we have about 50 majors, and that includes probably not more than a handful who are philosophy majors alone. What do some philosophy classes entail? They're all really hard. <laughs> <laughs> the reason that half the people who get into philosophy get into philosophy is so that it will improve all their test scores. So philosophers do better than any of the other humanities on even things like uh, the business management entrance courses. And philosophers do better on the GREs than any other group. So <clears throat> when you're thinking about a career of some kind, some students think, oh, if I do philosophy, I'll do a whole lot better and get into a better program. And that's true. So that means it's a hard course. It's rigorous. It's systematic. You don't get to memorize things and regurgitate them for a test. You actually have to be able to think and figure things out and solve problems. So would you say that uh, people take philosophy courses and maybe even major in philosophy uh, to improve other testing areas? Is that what you're oh, saying? Oh, yes, they do. Yeah. And they say so. In fact, we have probably 150 minors in the philosophy and law minor because everybody wants to do well on the LSAT. Wow. So this is how to do it. Take hard logic courses. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, for the, the, the few that are solely philosophy majors, uh, is the only option after... Uh, after graduation to grad, go to grad school? and Oh, no. No? No, no, no. Even those who are sole philosophy majors are people who have aspirations for their lives. A surprising number are entrepreneurs of some kind and end up being CEOs. Um, 
there are names that would probably be familiar to you, like PayPal or LinkedIn or Flickr. We're all founded by philosophers. Really? Philosophers who become artists, um, <laughs> like the guy who developed The Simpsons cartoons. Philosophers, many become actors, and many become musicians, but they want to know something. They want some content to their lives. So think from your perspective of a communications major who knows all about communicating but has nothing to communicate. Philosophy provides a great deal of substance so that if you're acting, you have very good ideas about how to do it better, why you're doing it. Can you think of uh, any, uh, maybe like a, a, an interesting fact that maybe not a lot of people know Parents worry about students who decide to be philosophy majors. One of the interesting things is that philosophy majors do better by mid-career than business majors in salary. I mentioned already that they do better on um, admissions tests, the um, management test. But in fact, they start out at a lower salary with a philosophy degree. But by mid-career, they've passed those business majors by half. Wow. So parents shouldn't worry. <laughs> Philosophy's the best major for anything that you want to be or do. Um, how, how common is philosophy in universities? It seems like a very, uh, a very old, uh, classic kind of study. Um, but even in modern day, do if you go to any major university, are you... Are you guaranteed to find philosophy? Absolutely. And philosophy is less taught in the United States than it is in the rest of the world. So it's even more common. Oh, yes. If you think of uh, the old British universities like Oxford and Cambridge, then you find lots more philosophy majors, lots more people trained in philosophy. And one of the things I didn't mention is that a lot of comedians were philosophers first. And that's especially true of the British comedians. All those troops of comedians uh, over the decades have been trained in philosophy at Oxford, usually. Um, and then to end the interview here, uh, what would you say to a listener who might be considering picking up maybe a double major in um, philosophy right now? Ooh, come visit me. Let's talk about it. Let me give you some flyers and information and show you how easy it is. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming in. Sure. Thank you. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Right now, we're covering weird majors. This next major was the first one I picked out to be strange when I looked at the list of all the majors. Women and Gender Studies. It's not that I was surprised it was a major. Gender and feminisms are such huge topics nowadays, and we're learning more about them all the time. I was more surprised I didn't know it was at MSU. So Lisa Fine came in to enlighten me as to why I had never heard of it. Uh, let me just um, speak about a little history. Since I'm a historian, I can't resist. So it isn't quite that new. Um, women and Gender Studies programs sprung up in the United States in the 1970s. Wow. So it's been around for a while. It came out of the awareness that was cultivated through the women's movement from the 60s and the 1970s. Right. In fact... Other than sort of campus protests around women's issues, women's and gender studies, and they were only called women's studies in those days, um, programs were some of the first 
manifestations of an awareness and consciousness about women's position and the fact that scholarship about women had been so deficient in so many different areas. So in my field in women's history, sort of restoring women's past to the story that we told ourselves about U.S. history. And that happened in the 70s, so that had been around for a while. Institutionally, majors sprung from those programs. Um, they were small, to be sure, and sometimes not considered wholly legitimate. But in, in, at MSU, at least, there was a women's studies major in the 90s, in the 1990s. Um, but for reasons that we don't need to go into here, um, it went into moratorium at the beginning of the 2000s. And um, it wasn't until we started our Jensen, a new women's studies program in 2007, um, that there was a recommitment to bringing it back. For those years between 2001 and 2007, and I think the major came back in 2008 and 9 because we needed a little time to get it going, we were the only Big Ten institution without a women's studies major. So it isn't that, it's never a huge major, it's never as big as biology or English or anything like that, but it has certainly been around for a while and has had ebbs and flows at Michigan State. And so we're hoping now that it's here to stay. How about you break it down now? What okay. What is it in a nutshell, the women's and gender studies major? One of the silver linings for having um, for having to reinvent it is that we could really update it and revise it in a ways that reflects current scholarship. Women's and gender studies um, and so we added the gender studies, so mm -hmm. it isn't just about women anymore. It's about gender dynamics, gender power, mm -hmm. um, gender ide identities, a whole host of other issues are now included in it, which is great and reflects contemporary scholarship. Um, but the other thing was we were able to bring a very broad cross-section of faculty from across campus, not just in the traditional areas like English or literature or philosophy, but even from some STEM disciplines, so really from every discipline you can imagine, to try to uh, make the women and gender studies major, the new one, completely and thoroughly multi and interdisciplinary. So that was an important goal. Mm -hmm. And I think we, we came pretty close, it's pretty good. Um, the other thing we wanted to do was to make it completely and totally global. So um, in the past, women's studies programs and women's studies scholarship had been um, criticized in some um, arenas for being too Western, you know, to, for being too middle class, for being too white, and we certainly wanted to make sure that this was women's studies that reflected women's experience around the globe, both past, present, and looking into the future. And so um, that was another important goal, which we incorporated. So, and finally, um, we wanted to honor the traditions and history of women's studies being connected to activism. Um, and so um, the first thing that I'll mention specifically is that a women's studies major requires an internship. It requires leaving the campus. It requires participating in, you know, something that involves working in the community or working for an NGO or working for an organization around women's issues, advocacy issues. Um, and we have an internship coordinator in our office, and we place the students in places that are appropriate for them, given what they're interested in. Early on, you mentioned that we've added gender to it. It used mm -hmm. to be just women's studies. And mm -hmm. Um, that's really interesting to me. I think uh, you mentioned that it's not a new major, but it used to be women's studies, and now they're, we're adding gender. And I feel like within the last maybe 20 or 30 years, there's been uh, a lot more knowledge kind of coming up about gender. Um, you know, why would you say we've added this the, the gender 
on that? Well, there's lots of complex. I mean, there's a lot of sort of intellectual and theoretical reasons. Um, so we don't know what it means to be female without knowing what it means to be male. So these are relational mm -hmm. understandings. Um, well, let me back up a little bit. Um, we needed women's studies because there was no knowledge or information about women alone. I mean, you know, the classic example is clinical trials on drugs that don't use women in them. Mm -hmm. So there's like sort of a basic hole or gap in our understanding about women in, in uh, my field of history for such a long time until the 60s. Uh, history was really about mostly white men. Right. And so that began to change. So it, there was a compensatory dimension to it. Like we needed to add information about a population half more than half the human race that had been excluded. Um, but then I think once that starts to get underway and people start to write books on women's history, women were workers, women were activists, women were leaders, women were mothers, you know, all of these arenas. Then we start to think about issues incorporating them within certain, and again, I'm talking about the field I know best, which is history. Mm -hmm. um, and then you realize that it, your your understanding is enhanced by being more total about this and seeing these gender uh, roles and, gen and, and activities within relation to each other. At least that's how I feel. Um, not everybody, of course, in the field, in any of the fields agrees with this necessarily, but right. that's sort of where we're, we're at. And also, um, you know, having a critical eye applied to masculinities and manhood, which again is a historical thing. It's not immutable. It's not unchangeable. Um, again, I could, there's a lot of intellectual reasons, depending on which discipline you talk about, where this seemed to make sense at a particular moment. Mm -hmm. Gender as a category is something that's talked about as well, a, an analytical category. Um, it's a lens through which you can view the world in a more enhanced and I think in a more insightful way. So that's why we include it. Do you know how many students are majoring in this? 25. 25? Roughly. Oh. Yeah. I mean, of course, it changes every semester right. because we gain and lose. Um, but it's oh, it's been, uh, it sort of went up uh, when we first started it, and it's always been about 25. It's um, very popular as a um, second major or um, double major. Um, students combine it, I think, very effectively with um, other majors. What kind of work do the students do after graduation? Well, I mean, I, I can give you some, a few insights, but um, we're a new major, right? It's only been a few years. We barely even had a few graduating classes, so it's hard to know, although we're going to try to take very good care and track that so we can be of assistance to students in the future. Um, but uh, students primarily have gone into um, graduate, world, graduate fields like mm -hmm. social work, psychology, and they use their women's studies major in addition to their additional major to do additional training. Mm -hmm. Students do uh, work with NGOs and nonprofits, um, coming out of it. Students do work with writing um, and uh, editing and publishing and things of that nature. Um, and again, since they're doing it with other majors, frequently it has to do with what that other major is, you know, that it's enhancing right. their work in that other field. Um, we have students who've won very prestigious national undergraduate awards and gone on to law school or graduate training, things of that nature. So again, it's very varied. Um, we also have a minor, I might add, and the types of students who do the minor um, are even more varied. Like I think, I think we have an astrophysicist who's minoring in women and gender studies, which is great. Yeah, that is great. <laughs> so it's a very um, applicable uh, degree. Um, it can be applied to a lot of different things because of its interdisciplinarity. 
there's always an opportunity for the students to enhance what they're doing by ha- applying that gendered lens. So can you think of any any time when uh, it really became apparent how obscure this this major might be? We are st- only starting now to get students from high school interested in our program. We, In fact, I just met with a, 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 a senior who came with her mom to our office because she was interested. But there again, it was as a second major. You know, she was already accepted to a residential college and she wanted to learn more about our program and how she could meld the two. Um, that's increasing, but it's still quite rare. And so I think what happens is students come in imagining that they're going to, um, you know, participate in more conventional programs, more commonly taken programs. And somewhere along the way, either through a friend or through an experience in college, they encounter women and gender studies. And then we get them to come into our office. So as sophomores and juniors is normally when. And so I haven't done a study of what that experience is or what that encounter is, but it seems to be fairly common that that's how it happens. Um, Again, there are some who already come to us as freshmen, um, very aware that this is something they want to explore. But the more common experience is that it's a res- as a result of a professor in their history class or a professor in religious studies or in philosophy or some other place that brings up issues related to women and gender. And they go, oh, that might be kind of interesting to explore in more depth. And that's when we get them to, you know, um, inquire. Last question. Uh, do you know of uh, how common this this major might be in other universities across the nation? Right. Every Big Ten institution has it. Certainly U of M has a huge women and gender studies major and program, um, which has been continuously offering these things since the 70s. Um, as I said to you before, we for a while there, we were the only Big Ten institution that didn't. Um, it's fairly common. It's just usually very small schools that can't afford it. Um, I don't think it's considered fringe or out of the ordinary anymore. Um, that doesn't necessarily speak to how much support the program gets, but it's certainly considered something that needs to be there, even if it's only meagerly supported by institutions. So it's not it's not um, unusual anymore. Again, it may not be big and robust, but um, it's something that is considered a legitimate um, focus of scholarly inquiry um, at this point, I ho- and I hope it will stay that way. If somebody's listening and sounds really interested in getting involved with the Women and Gender Studies major, what can they do? Um, we have our offices in the International Center, in, at 206 International Center, the offices of Jensen. Um, we have a undergraduate advisor um, who is happy to direct students um, through their programs, figure out the best way to incorporate um, this program and the courses into their program. Um, she's a full-service advisor. Um, her name is Dory Hopkins, and she um, takes appointments. She has walk-in hours. So that's the best way to start. Of course, um, students can email me um, or her um, and um, or the general uh, Jensen email address, which is jensen at msu.edu, and we um, will respond right away. Thanks so much for coming mm-hmm. in, Lisa. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89 FM. Right now, we're talking about strange majors. Okay, now for my ARCA friend. It turns out ARCA is spelled R-C-A-H, and it's an acronym for Residential College of Arts and Humanities. Maybe you knew that, but I didn't. That's what I found through Google. But that's about all I could find. For the rest, I turned to Carolyn Loeb. 
It's a relatively new program. It's a living learning community uh, in which uh, students receive a degree in arts and humanities. Carolyn is the associate dean of the arts and humanities major, or ARCA. But um, they're studying at the residential college in the arts and humanities, uh, which is located in Snyder Phillips. And so um, we certainly... um, uh, welcome transfer students, but students often start out as freshmen uh, living for the first two years at least um, in Snyder Phillips. And um, this creates a very close environment because their classrooms and their faculty's offices are right within the same building. Um, so we literally have students, you know, falling out of bed and showing up in class. And sometimes I see those fuzzy little tiger face slippers underneath the desks, even. (laughs) But it's an interdisciplinary major in which students are uh, taking a wide assortment of arts and humanities courses. We also encourage double majors so students can um, pursue a particular focus in greater depth. But at the RCAH, uh, the courses are really looking at how the arts and humanities uh, can contribute to the common good. About how many people are in this major? We have about 300 students. Okay. So it's very small scale, and there's a, um, a great sense of intimacy among students but also between students and uh, faculty and staff. So another one of the things I've heard about this is that they have a strange curriculum when it comes to classes. Uh, what, what kinds of classes do these majors take? If you want to use the word strange, our, <laughs> our uh, signature, uh, let's use that instead, of uh, classes are um, our core classes, um, the first that a student takes uh, their freshman year is called the presence of the past. And um, <clears throat> this is an integrated interdisciplinary course that uh, can be on uh, a variety of topics because each faculty member approaches it differently. Um, and I'll come back to our faculty in a moment. Uh, but it... Um, takes an, a problem or a, um, a set of experiences or an art form and looks at its resonance today, although its roots may lie in the past. And that's followed up with another core class um, that is even more signature, um, transculturation through the ages. And um, transculturation has become a kind of uh, catchword in our college because our focus is indeed on looking at how cultures interact uh, within a society, but especially uh, globally, how um, throughout history societies have um, been transformed through their contacts in various ways 
with other cultures. So after graduation, is there kind of one area that a lot of these students go to uh, as far as careers, or is it a broad spectrum? What kinds of things do they do? It's a very broad spectrum. Um, our placement rate last year was 100%. Um, some of our students go on to graduate school in uh, a wide range of fields from art history to uh, religious studies um, to law, journalism, film studies. Um, but we also place, in fact, a majority of our students um, go out into the work world, um, uh, working with nonprofits, um, arts administrators, environmental organizations, uh, AmeriCorps, Teach for America, a, a wide number of um, areas whose only common denominator um, really is, um, and this is true in the broad number of cases, not everyone, but um, if there is a common de denominator, it's um, uh, looking at um, places, organizations, uh, working in non-governmental organizations that are trying to affect um, social change. Is this a, a common major to have across uh, the nation? Or is this something that is a little bit hard to find? Yes, I'd say um, the uh, ARCA is uh, among a very few and a, a pioneer among those few in um, looking at a, an active learning uh, teaching situation that integrates uh, both uh, what students are, are learning with how to uh, put that knowledge and their skills to use uh, immediately in civic engagement projects. Many of our classes are uh, partnered with organizations throughout the Lansing area, whether it's public schools or um, uh, Peckham Industries or um, other organizations the uh, Refugee Development Center is another that comes to mind. Um, and this kind of emphasis in a living learning community is uh, very special. I won't say it's unique, but it's an unusual uh, and pioneering example. Is there something that the arts and humanities major has that uh, kind of stands out to you as, as unique within it? Um, like you mentioned, how close-knit they were. They're all, they all kind of live together for the most part. Yes, yes. There's a strong uh, uh, sense of um, uh, common bond that people build. Um, and there's a uh, uh, definitely an identity as an RCAH student that evolves and a, a sense of a, a common place. That's, that functions um, in a very interesting way because... The students really feel uh, Snyder Phillips as their home and um, have spaces um, where they, where informal learning takes place, for example, um, so that there's an art gallery that has changing exhibits and the students participate in 
in creating, uh, installing, I should say, those exhibits because the exhibits, for the most part, are uh, works by um, artists and communities outside of the college. Occasionally we do have, especially at the end of every semester, student exhibits, but there are other informal spaces where our um, very artistically active students can also show their works. Um, but in addition to the gallery, there's a theater um, where we have student productions um, going on several times a semester and other forms. Uh, we have a, a student um, singing group, for example, example, a cappella, um, an art studio, and then a language and media center. And all of these provide spaces that students can uh, claim as their own. Um, one of the most exciting things, though, for me has always been the um, extremely informal situations that I come upon where you find uh, student musicians playing in the hall, uh, playing their, their instruments in the stairwells, for example, which of course resonate beautifully for their needs, but um, uh, shaping the spaces to um, their own purposes and creativity. Is, is there a time that you can uh, I think of that really demonstrated how uncommon or maybe unique that this major is? Um, well, there are uh, actually so many uh, times. Um, we have many study, not many, we have um, uh, several study abroad programs, and um, each of them in their own way is uh, provides our students, but also students from elsewhere on campus, um, extraordinary opportunities. And they all could um, serve as strong examples. But I think especially of um, the work that our dean is um, engaged in in Mali, um, where he's led study abroad, studies abroad um, for several years. And um, in a place that has recently been uh, affected by social and political turmoil, um, where the stability and the much respected, internationally respected, um, uh, strong sense of caring for each other that has characterized Mali in recent decades was interrupted by um, a certain amount of uh, upheaval and brutality, our Dean Stephen Esquith um, has uh, explored and uh, ways in which reconciliation can occur. And he's worked with our students who have in turn worked with uh, middle school students in Mali and with education college students uh, to create reconciliation uh, models using the arts so that um, they talk about their experiences and then groups of college students, middle school students, both from Mali and our RCAH students uh, construct art projects through which um, the Malians can express 
what their experiences have been and um, how they may see a way forward to reconstructing their society and reestablishing the close relationships among different kinds of people, different backgrounds of people that had existed. Um, and uh, this is a project that's ongoing. So, that seems to me pretty <laughs> unusual, but also expressive of the multi-layered way that education is conceived in, in ARCA. Thanks so much for coming in. Oh, you're very welcome. You are listening to Exposure on the Impact 89FM. Tonight, we're talking about uncommon majors. To wrap up a show today, we bring in a science. A very confusing science. Neuroscience. Laura Simmons, the director of the undergraduate neuroscience program, came in to try to clear up my confusion. And as I started the interview, I realized that I actually didn't know what the major was that I was interviewing her about. I don't even know actually what it actually <laughs> correlates to, but I think the brain. Um, well, that's that's real close. So neuroscience, I mean, it's 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 interesting that you say it's mysterious because it probably it could because it is interested in the, it's the study of the thing we probably know least about, which is the nervous system. So, but it's it's more than that actually, because neuroscience is, I'm sure, the broadest discipline within the sciences. It has it, so it's not just science and biological science, but it's how that science interacts also with other fields. So there are fields such as neurophilosophy, neuroethics. And that you really wouldn't say necessarily is a biomedical science so much. It's not really the study of the brain. It's the study of how the nervous system interacts with, say, society or something like that. So it's a broad field. A while ago, I heard um, that we had a study here at MSU um, about looking at the brain while people were reading um, mm -hmm. literature. Do you right. know about this? Yeah, that's Dr. Natalie Phillips' study. She works, um, she's in the English department, and she um, is is unusual in that she is applying functional magnetic resonance imaging to uh, her study of how it is that people interpret or read um, literature, whether when they're reading deeply for meaning or when they're just reading as quickly as they can, things like that. So that's that's been a really popular laboratory for a lot of our undergraduates so to work an, in. So that's an MRI scan of their brain. Yes, and, and it's functional MRI scan so that you're right, so that as someone is in that scanner reading, you can get a measure of what parts of the brain are more active than others. Okay, so this specific major, this is an under, undergraduate major. Mm -hmm. Yep. Um, how, how many people are... In are, this major? Yeah. Well, okay, so we started two and a half years ago. That's We just launched wow. about a little over two years ago, and we started with 25 majors then. We now have, well, you know, last week I checked, and we had 448 so it has grown. I mean, it's, it's a it's a relatively popular major. Yeah. Um, but it's it it is really interesting that the students that we have in the major are usually very excited about it, and it's a real community. There is a neuroscience club where students are getting to know each other. The students in classes, we work very hard to um, have lots of interaction between the students and the professors, and then also among the students. This it's a it's a great major, I think. So what kinds of things do you learn in the undergraduate? Because 
my first impression of neuroscience is that you got to know a lot. Um, <laughs> That's true, actually. It's not an easy major. Yeah, it doesn't seem easy. And especially when you're you know, an undergraduate, what kinds of things do you learn in these classes for this major? Okay, that's a great question. So we have three required courses. To become a neuroscience major, you actually have to enroll in these three courses. Neuroscience, introduction to Neuroscience 1 and 2, and then also the laboratory. So the main thing that you begin to learn in the first course is how neurons cells in the brain talk to each other. And, you know, that's a, that's a, ni a nice, simple way of saying something that's really a complicated <laughs> process. So, you know, how neurons talk to each other has a lot to do with molecules and receptors and transduction of energy into other forms. And, I mean, it does get quite complicated. It's basically neurophysiology. So that's the first thing that people begin with. And that's carried over also into the laboratory because people actually get to do uh, neurophysiological experiments, uh, electrophysiology, and that is very interesting. Then you get to see the concepts come alive. You say, oh, my God, you, this is what an action potential looks like, and that's fun. Is this a major that you can see across the country at every major university, or is this something you're going to have to search for? It's becoming ever more popular, and that's – and so, for example – Students having 25 majors two years ago and having, you know, getting close to 500 now is a good indication of the popularity of this field across the country. We are, it, it is not nearly so common to have a neuroscience major in a large research intensive university like MSU. It is much more common in a small liberal arts college where psychology and biology departments have kind of cobbled together a neuroscience degree. And there are actually some very good ones in these small liberal arts colleges. What we are doing in our neuroscience major is to give students the opportunities of a really deep research uh, intensive uh, program at the same time that giving them the feel of a small liberal arts college. So for example, even though our intro courses can be up to maybe 70 students at a time, the laboratory is only 16 to 24 students and all our 400 level courses tend to be in the teens, you know, 12 students, 8 students, 20 students. So um, so it's, it, it is very popular across the country. I think that MSU's program is relatively unique. Is, is there only one uh, career pathway ah. for a neuroscience oh, major? Oh, no, absolutely. No, in fact, it's really been fun to, to find uh, the, the careers that students could best fit into with a neuroscience degree. So keep in mind, there are two things about this. One, the education in a neuroscience for, uh, within the neuroscience degree is basically how to think critically, how to solve a problem. So you, you know, in your life, you get data like, oh, here's my finances, how much money I have, and then you have to decide what you're going to do with it. Well, that can be a problem. And if you can gather data and know how to critically evaluate it, no matter what you do, no matter whether you're living just at home on domestic projects or in your work, that basically being able to gather information, sort through what's most important, and then come up with an answer that's reasonable is basically an example of critical thinking, and that's what we are very, very focused on in neuroscience. But then, think. remember when I told you that the, the, the major is really broad, and neuroscience as a field is very broad. So we have students who go into, certainly we have people go, who go to medical school and veterinary school and nursing school, uh, optometry, podiatry, lots of the um, uh, 
the medical professions, as well as graduate programs. We have several students who have gone on now to graduate school in neurosciences. There are so many other fields you can pursue. We have a student now in, who's pursuing a degree in public health. She wants to be a hospital administrator. And she discovered that just in one of her internships in the neuroscience program and realized she loved it. So she's going to that. We have another student who is going to science writing, who's going to be working with Science Magazine. So there are, there are just so many things. I mean, just going into business, having a, a neuroscience background is a good thing. You know, early on the show when we had on um, uh, a uh, philosophy uh-huh. uh, professor, we talked a little bit about how there are a lot of philosophy majors who take philosophy just to kind of excel more at their other courses. Would you say there's a similar uh, type of attitude towards the neuroscience major? So, uh, that's a really good question. I think that the certainly the skills that we require of students in the neuroscience courses are very translatable. So it is true that if you can learn to solve a problem in neurosignaling, you can learn to solve a problem in literary analysis. So I do think that then in that sense it's, although I have to say that I think a philosophy degree is a great degree for uh, general critical thinking. Have you ever been in a situation or can you remember a time when it was really well demonstrated that how, how obscure or how new this, uh, this kind of major is? Has, has in, oh. have, have you ever talked to anyone and they just went, Yes. What? <laughs> All the time. Um, let me think. I think, so here's an example. About 15 years ago, so that that may not seem, that seems fairly recent to me, but maybe not to you. <laughs> you know? But I'm going to go with this example anyway. So about 15 years ago, I taught a seminar course with a fellow faculty member, and we were interested in um, basically studying the role of selective attention. How do people attend to the one thing but not another? And we had students from psychology as well as other science fields, than uh, science fields. And so as I was preparing the reading list for this course, I, there was no place in the library, that's when people actually went to libraries, there was no place in the library where I could find the information. I had to keep going up to the different wings because neuro, Basically, this was a course in neuroscience, and it was drawing from so many other fields. So, you know, I was having to go to the psychology section and to the medical section and just sort of all over the place just to form the syllabus for the course. So that's sort of an example, I guess. If somebody's listening to this right now and they seem interested Uh and they want to get more involved, what would you say to them? Uh, Two things. One, they should definitely check out the Neuroscience Club, which has a website and a Facebook page. Uh, it's a great group of students. They have a lot of fun, and they also learn about the careers that, that one could pursue. The other thing to do is to make an appointment with our academic advisor, and that you can do that on the web in, through the College of Natural Science. Her name is uh, Kanchan, K-A-N-C-H-A-N, and uh, she's, she's very, very good at... Um, guiding people into either into or out of neuroscience depending on what their their real interests are thanks so much for coming in absolutely that's it for the show tonight i hope we dispelled any reservations you had about these uncommon majors you can find this episode as well as all other exposure episodes on our website www.impact89fm.org 
A special thanks to our station manager, Gabriella Saldivia, and our general manager, Ed Glazer. I've been your host, Quinn Hoffman, and you've been listening to Exposure on WDBM East Lansing, Impact 89 FM.